Episode 24 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Tom Little, who's the fitness coach at Preston North End. Tom joined us to talk about how he structures his microcycles throughout the season, his views on conditioning on with or without the ball, and how his company Colourfit was created. He also talks about, at the very start of the episode, he spoke about uh, job titles as well, which is pretty entertaining uh, chat with Tom. This episode is sponsored yet again by the Soccer Science Conference. So the Soccer Science Conference is going to be an awesome event held in June, the 21st of June, Friday the 21st of June, um, at Hotel Football in Manchester, which is right next to Old Trafford. It's going to be a top, top event. There's loads of top speakers. Gary Neville is the keynote speaker. There's uh, other speakers like Shane Murphy from Man City. Paul Bradley is a consultant with Barcelona. Um, and Callum Walsh, who works with Huddersfield Town. Uh, loads of top speakers, and it's an awesome event. I attended the event last year down in Bristol, and it was a great, great event, and this one looks to be even better. So make sure you go and get your tickets. You can go onto our website, footballfitfed.com, and click on Network um, Meetings and Event tab at the top, and there's a drop-down to the Soccer Science Conference. If you click on that, that'll take you through to the Soccer Science website. And then when you purchase your ticket, Use code FFF10 and you'll get 10% off your ticket. Enjoy the episode with Tom. And as always, let us know how you found it, uh, your biggest takeaways. Um, give us some feedback on the episode. It was great chatting to him. And like we said in the episode, it was good to uh, chat to a fellow northerner. Enjoy the episode with Tom. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tom Little, who's the head of fitness at Preston North End. Tom, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks Ben. Thanks a lot for asking us on. You guys are doing some great work with the Football Fitness Federation, so it's nice to be asked and nice to uh, be speaking to a fellow Northerner and Mank. Yeah, that's exactly how we had to get you on, mate. We had to get this balance right. Hey, we just had a little chat about um, your job title, head of fitness, fitness coach. What are you? Um, we'll say on this, I'm head of fitness. I'll try and be a bit more politically correct now now we're uh, recording live um it's a topic of loads of debate in it and i i have been caught in the mire of it certainly if you look on linkedin i'm pretty sure i'm head of performance on there previously i've called myself head of sports science when it's just been me on my own um so you do get lulled into that but i just feel the head of performance for me, it means you're the manager or the head of coach. If you're in charge of performance, you're in charge of what the lads are doing when they go out on the field on uh, Saturday for the 90 minutes. So I can certainly live without that pressure. So I'm always happy to call myself fitness coach because I think it does what it says on the tin. You're really in charge of all the kind of biomotor qualities are important to football, so speed, strength, stamina, all those things. You're in charge of keeping them fit, i.e. not injured, and fitness relates to health, and you're in charge of all those parameters in terms of nutrition and things like that. So I'm an old fart, so I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to stick to my uh, fitness coach, although I, I might sneak in head off now and again. I like it. So just take us off. Let's go into your background. So take us off. I've just mentioned your current role, but take us through your career so far. So where did you start and what led you to where you are now? As I mentioned there, I'm an old fart now. I'm 41. I've been uh, working in professional football. This is my 20th season. So I've wrapped up over a thousand professional games now. 
So this could take a while, but I'll try and do the shortened version of it, like pretty much everyone else. I did a sports science degree just because I loved sport, really, and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So I did that down at Birmingham. I had three of the greatest years of my life. But come out and still really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, just looking for jobs. I was just about to take this job to do with IT. And then I saw an advert in the paper um, that was for, it just said, working part-time with a professional athlete. So I went for that. And as it turned out, just incredibly lucky. It was working with a company called New Life Fitness that was run by a guy called Ed Baranofsky, who's out in New Zealand now. And he pretty much had the monopoly on the fitness game within professional football, certainly within the North. So he, he worked as a consultant. He worked at loads of different clubs. So we had like lots of clubs that were doing well in the North. So we had like Leeds we were in the Champion League semi-final then. Man City, Bolton, Wigan, Forest, Huddersfield, uh, to name but a few. He really had, did have a, a good monopoly uh, around the Northwest. So I started off, I was so wet behind the ears, but I didn't have uh, much responsibility. I was pretty much... Uh, put her cones down and pick them up, which is 90% of pretty much what I do now anyway. Um, but yeah, it was a great grounding for me to see so many different practices, to learn from Ed, of course, to network with like so many different coaches and players and not while well, I didn't have that much pressure on me. So it's a really brilliant and lucky start that I had to it. Um, after a while, Ed got offered a role with Prince Nassim. They wanted him to be the kind of fitness coach for their camp of boxers and look after Naz as well. So he wanted to do that and then he needed someone to step up and he chose me to do that. So he made me the kind of head of programming and he spent a lot of money on my developments. What he'd done, he learned most of his stuff in America. So he sent me out there and I actually trained as an athlete in what was now kind of exos or athlete's performance but it's in the voluntary tennis academy so I went as an athlete and got absolutely beasted but brilliant experience met people like Berngan Better courses by Mel Sif and Paul Check and people like that who were really prominent at the time so really up my kind of practical education and I got all like kind of my CSCS and BWA that were the main lifted uh, strength qualifications around then and then I was in charge of kind of the programming for all the clubs which was fantastic I, uh, for my sins I also chose to do a, a master's degree full-time at night school while I was doing that so I had so much on my plate it was real hell for a year but got through that and then at the end of that I thought about pursuing my PhD and I wanted to do it on small-sided games, which meant it'd be better just doing it with one club. And Forrest offered me that role, and they were happy for me to take lactates and, and do loads of stuff around small-sided games. So I decided to take that role, uh, complete my PhD, and then ever since then, I've just really flirted around the various football clubs, mainly in the championship. been very fortunate enough to work with some good teams, got six promotions under my belt, been some dark days in there as well, fighting relegation, but you learn as much from the bad times as you do your good. So uh, it's been a great uh, experience for me. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Just uh, sat now with Preston North End there for my sixth year, which is <laughs> a record for me, but an absolute mile. So I'm getting a nosebleed and just waiting for my uh, P45 at the moment there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what, what do you think some of the biggest changes you've made over the six years at Preston? At Preston? Um, the main changes have come about through the manager, if I'm honest. When I first come, the biggest change, Sam Grayson was in charge then. And he had a philosophy where he didn't train that hard in the Mondays, which is very common now. But I, I did buy into it, but not massively. I thought it could be a useful day, but their injury record was so good that I really did buy into it at the time. And then we just used a British system there and... It was just working on a really good team spirit, working on the fundamentals of the game, working hard on the Tuesday and then just getting prepared as we we built in. And it was mainly based on just having a real good spirit, being organised, being tough to be. And we got promoted and really punched above our weight. Alex Neal's come in and brought a different system, so he's more tactical periodisation, a lot more on-field coaching. Um, So adapting to that, system has been the main change so I won't say I've made the main changes it's been just adapting more to the managers that I've worked with and trying to maximise my philosophies within the principles that they work in and one of the areas I wanted to speak about was your approach to conditioning players so can you give an overview of how you guys go about that it's a huge question. I mean, we could be talking for days, but probably the easiest way to address it is to talk about my generally philosophy as a approach training as a whole. So I try and write these kind of black books of training every three to four years and write down the main principles that I believe in. And the main one that stuck with me is what I call the three E's, and that's nothing to do with my raving days. It sounds for... Um, being effective, being efficient and being enjoyable. So if you look at effectiveness, anything you do really should have some kind of evidence base. So the ideal for that is that you've got some good level peer-reviewed research on the appropriate population proving that that science works. And like I said, it it is good fundamental science. Um, So that's a great, but I don't think you have to rely on that and you can be behind the game if you do rely on that. So for me, long as it's based on kind of first principle science and going back to what he's doing physiologically, uh, biochemically and all the other things, if there's a rationale behind it, then I'll always give it credence. Um, And then the cherry on the top of that, particularly if you're dealing with selling it to players and coaching it, is there other teams out there that are already using these practices and they're having success with them as well. So I'll always look for a good rationale behind a model that I come in. Then the next step is being efficient. So any kind of skill-based field sport, there's so many things to work on. You've got to work on all your biomotor capacities. You've got to work on keeping them robust and injury-free. Then you've got to throw in all your tactical and technical development. And that's before you're even considering playing 50-odd games uh, a year. So there's so many things to consider. Um, so that's why you've really got to be as efficient as you can. So there's a number of layers to that. So can you kill two birds with one stone? So the use of small-sided games to train both technical capacities and physical capacities and tactical capacities at the same time. Are you using something where you're getting the most bang for your buck? So is it a really effective exercise? So let's it's for strength training, for example, something like maximum strength training. Uh, is really getting a lot of bang for your buck because you're getting those maximum strength levels in terms of really important for dueling and things like that. 
You're also improving your power over a high force range, the key for acceleration. You're improving your injury robustness. You're improving your running economy, all based on improving one parameter. So you're getting a massive bang for your buck there. It's more than you probably would if you're concentrated on just going for something like hypertrophy or something like that. And then can you be really efficient in the design of your program? So something like Mike Boyle's uh, approach to it, where he's looking at working push-pulls opposing so you can get through the routine quickly and only work on the things that are key. So maximum knee dominant, hip extensor dominant, a push-pull, an anti-rotation core. And if you're covering those things, you're in the main, you're doing the right thing. So just cut away the periphery. If it's not really important and it's not going to have a massive effect, don't utilize it because there's so much to work on. And then my final thing that I mentioned was trying to be enjoyable as well. So you're going to get miles more buy-in and you're going to get a lot more motivation and overall success if you can make it enjoyable. So can you turn it into kind of games like small-sided conditioning and things like that? Can you make it competitive? Make it an environment where you can have a laugh when when it's available. So if you looked, for example, like what the England team were doing for their warm-downs, you saw they had the floats out and they're doing all these races and they're having a top laugh. But there'll be some people watching that, boring bastards, just thinking, well, they're not doing recovery to the optimal state there. But, I mean, really, who cares? Because the psychology will always overlay physiology and, and things like team building and buying in and, and, and um, enjoyment will really overlay than just making sure the blood's flowing a little bit through the muscles when all your ma- ma- metabolites have been cleared ages ago anyway. So... I'd always uh, override kind of enjoyment where I can for just doing something absolutely by the letter to get the optimum results. So how do you think your approach over the years under different managers and as you've picked up more experience has changed to conditioning your players? I think the main thing that changed for me over time is kind of the risk-reward of uh, applying overload and that risk of getting them fitter and and, and pushing them into the boundaries where there's an injury risk. So when I first started, I just came out thinking I could change the world, really, and I was going to make all these footballers into super athletes and they were going to be invincible, basically. So I was really pushing the edges, lots of overspeed training, lots of kind of repetition max training, really kind of push the boundaries of where they could get to. But because of that and, and the level of training back then, players weren't as accustomed to it. I did cause quite a lot of injuries where I started, so then the rebound of that was I was very much aware that performance mainly related to putting out your best 11 on the pitch. So I may have gone a little bit, had a spell where I was going a little bit safe with them and the overload. I always had a principle of you work hard and as long as you work hard, it doesn't really matter what you do, you will get adaptations. Um, so I've always had that as a philosophy, but... I did go a little bit more towards just making sure I'm not pushing them too hard, particularly when you, you come into games. Then I've, I've, I've settled down and got more experience and, and different managers allow that. It's just really trying to find that balance now where you are pushing them when it is appropriate. And I really do believe in it. And a lot of the top managers now, they're consistently producing the best results, do work their players hard during the week and, work, and they 
actually work really hard for their match performance. It relates it. Teams that keep, keep a lot of possession. And there was a phase where physicality didn't really reflect where you were in the league. But now, I think the, more, the different playing styles, the high press, the possession-based games lend itself a bit more to you have to be really good athletes. So I'm very much buying into the development and overload of the players, but really at the same time, the appreciation that you have to get your best 11 out there as much as possible. And there's a big discussion on conditioning and whether it should be done with the ball, without the ball, or a mixture of both. So what's your approach to that? Definitely a mixture of both as an overall answer. Um, I wanted to be kind of known as the kind of Mr. Football Fitness guy. I put a lot of my um, development into lots of tools to do with using uh, game conditioning as much as possible. And I really do believe in that for the principles I was talking about before. You get the most bang for your buck. It allows you to be really efficient. It keeps the players uh, massively motivated and you can really develop your technical and tactical model at the same time, people talk about sometimes psychological toughness, but I think you can also get that um, within very specifically within your football training as well. So I, I do believe in it. In it, and I think certain models that you use, so tactical periodization. If you're going to do two high load days using um, football conditioning, I think. In those models, it is quite hard to have extra training on top of that, what we've just called physical training. Um, I think when you're just doing nominal running training, I think that fits more into the British system. Um, but I do definitely believe in it um, because it does provide a number of advantages. So you know that they're going to work at a certain intensity for a start. And although you can, can, you can minimise the variation in small-sided gains by using more intense drills and using less numbers, you will always have slightly more variation. So you know for definite you are ticking a box that all players are going to work in an appropriate intensity if you do running training as well. I think some types of training where you're delivering that steady physiological stimulus is more potent as well. So if you look at things like VO2 max training, which is akin to like your four fours, as everyone knows it as, one of the major adaptation points from that is a maximal stroke volume, increasing your uh, cardiac output capacity, which is a key influence uh, of um, your VO2 max. So I think if you apply that over a steady nature for your three or four minutes, whatever it be, it'll be a more potent stimulus than it would be for being slightly below it and then slightly above it as it would be with an intermittent sporadic sport like football. And then the final part with it in terms of running, I, I think you can set real cultural standards and use it as a form of testing by making you can use it as an objective measure of where people are that are doing it and set minimal standards that you need to be working within, within this capacity to be seen, to be fit enough. Because within football, unless it's a two or three side, you are able to hide if you really want to and wildly play as well. And I don't mind them doing that some of the time because that's a lot of the way that people play. But now and again, you definitely need to look at that and say, well, I players maintaining a certain standard of fitness 
and then you use that for a culture of our culture is about if you're not at this standard of fitness it's unacceptable and I don't think you can do that so much with small-sided games where I think it's very easy to do uh, with football and there's really clever things coming out now like looking at your uh, metabolic efficiency so looking at your kind of load against your um you play a load against your internal loads, so like your heart rate load, and looking at uh, correlations of that as an indication of fitness. But I just believe you, you can just use a, a simple running test to objectively look at that a lot more simply and reliably. So overall, I'd say uh, a blend of both is maximum, but sometimes you're doing so much football that you can't do running. And can you break down some of the your approach to your microcycles throughout the season as well? Yeah, I'm really interested in microcycles because I think uh, field-based skill sports, it's really about the microcycle because there's, there's, there's competition so frequently, there's not that much chance really to work on microcycles and mesocycles. There is, but nowhere near as much as kind of Olympic sports and things like that. So... It's easiest really to start in, in what we use at Preston now. And it is a bit unusual because we use both. So we do use a version of the tactical periodization, And we use that all the time when the manager first come in. He'd had great success, had two promotions with it all, already. And a lot of top managers were using it. So he really believed in it. Um, and it was great for him because he's a real coaching coach. He likes to get him, get him on the field. So we do our small-sided day, match day, minus four. Big light-sided day, match minus three. And it allowed him a lot of opportunity to work with the players in a tactical manner. And they were very successful with that. The technical level really improved them. And we were very difficult to beat. It really worked on the opposition and, and, and how to stop them. So it really worked. The downside of it was that we were just a bit too honest and worked a bit too hard on all capacities. So we trained the great lads at Preston. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, and so training would be hard. Then we come to match day and then that would be hard as well. So we played a real pressing game. We'd work reasonably hard in the gym as well. And just overall, I, I think overall, it was just a little bit too much overall. And we did pick up a few too many of little niggly injuries just a bit too often and certainly around crowded times around Christmas and things like that. So we were looking away of basically how can we keep a lot of the positives with it but just take a little bit off the load. So we made a few decisions where we made our small-sided day uh, generally not quite as hard so it wasn't a true overload anymore um, but generally kept our lighter sided day as our hardest day but we would occasionally swap that round um, and then we took a little bit out on the gym in terms of the leg exercises as well still had some important ones in there but we decided to take some ones out of there and that worked but then we also thought about what, another problem we had we, we thought that the uh, non-starters weren't getting an optimal stimulus because um, we needed them for the numbers, for the shape, and the start of the tactical periodization after the weekend, you want them to work quite hard early in the week. We just thought it was a bit unfair for them. So what we decided to do is one week we're going to go on tactical periodization. The next week we'd alternate into what you'd call more the British system with Wednesday off and your hard day Tuesday and then shape being more 
of your match day minus two. And that has allowed us to have regular bounce games on those weeks on a Tuesday. And we thought those players were getting a more appropriate stimulus. And overall, it worked out as a less overall load when everything was added up by using that system as well. So we thought that was another way of just reducing the overall load slightly and then improving the benefits to our reserve players on a, a bi-weekly model. But also on the, with the British system, we're also able to do our shape on the Thursday because we had sufficient numbers. If you're dealing with a large squad like the top teams will be, it might not be much as a problem with the getting regular bounce games but ha- and having sufficient numbers to do your shape, but it's a bit of a problem our way. And, and that was the way we decided to tackle it. And I'm a massive fan of it, I must say. Our injury record has been excellent since we've done it. The lads are super fit and we've gone on a, a real run of form. So um, there's flaws in it. As there is flaws with every system, but it seems to be working for us. And that's my main thing when it comes to microcycles because there's so many different... It's not about picking an optimal system because there's advantages and disadvantages to every system. It's about choosing a system that suits your goals and then optimising that system that you're using. So, for example, if you're a coach that really likes to coach your team on the field and you want to do it in a high-intensity way then tactical periodization is a real good way of doing that because you'll have more coaching time on the field and you'll be able to work at um, those higher intensities. would be good. It's got advantages where you can work on different energy systems more often, but it's definitely got disadvantages. If you're doing that volume of training on the field, there's no way that you're going to do really good, effective speed training and strength training added onto that. It'll just be too much if you are truly applying overloads on that match day minus three and four. Um, and this rationale of, well, it's safe to do because on one day you're working more on quads and glutes and working on your tendons because you're doing a lot more stretch shortening cycles. And then on your bigger day, you're working more on hamstrings and more on the muscular system. People are really bought into that, but not really questioned it at all as except of uh, wisdom. Because there's certainly no peer-reviewed evidence backing that up. There is a level of uh, rationale to it, but if you're doing maximum speed uh, sprinting on your larger sided day, you're telling me your tendons aren't really working. For me, your tendons are working massively. You're more like a kangaroo at maximum speeds, and your tendons are going through loads of work, and your muscles are really stiff. When you're doing loads of X-cells and D-cells, your hammy's not working. I'm telling you, your hammies are working overtime to do all those D-cells on a multiplanar level. So people have really accepted this rationale for doing back-to-back hard days when, if you look at it, there's no way that that is not a risk doing back-to-back hard days training. So for me, I, I sound very critical of it there. I love that system and think it's really good, but it's not just all sweetness and light. So the British system... That allows you to be a bit more simple on the Tuesday, on your match day minus four. You can really give it a good overload. You can afford to do good speed training and uh, strength training on match day minus four and two. It's a lot easier to put in. And although a lot of the top teams are using the periodized system, if you look at 
who's overachieved the most, certainly my generation, you look at Leicester and I think Burnley are the biggest overachievers, they used the British system while they were doing that. And Man United, the great Man United side used the British system. So I, like, it goes back to my first point. There isn't just an optimal way of doing things. There's loads of ways of being successful, but it's just maximising the principles that you choose to use. Fair to say, Tom, that what you'd look at is you'd look at your conditioning in terms of what you're doing within that microcycle, and then you'd fit your strength and your speed work and everything else that you put into it around that. Yeah, if I can. So on on the uh, periodized system, we'll do a strength day. So we'll do kind of an injury prevention and upper body strength type session on the Monday. So match day plus two, and then we'll also do our harder day. Um, on the match day minus three after we finished all our hard training. Now, people could really critique that and say, well, you're going into a hard strength training session after you've done all your back-to-back endurance work and it's not going to be as potent. But it goes back to my most important thing. It's probably injury prevention. So I'm not going to put the players at injury risk by doing an effective leg program before I go into two or in the middle of two hard field training days. So that's what I say. That is what is compromised on that week. Whereas if I look at my British system, I'm, I'm much easier able to do my hard day on match day minus four and then the easier, more IP-based session on match day minus two. So the, the flip round in terms of the order and they go on different days as well. No, that's great. Um, sure, people will take loads from that. But let's just move it on. Let's go on to um, more of your philosophy. So I know this is an area that you've really got deep into, and obviously we can talk about colour fit and where all that's come from. But can you talk about your approach to nutrition? Because it, it's a very confusing topic, and I know a lot of people get pretty confused when they start searching online about the approach they should take. But what's your approach and your philosophy behind nutrition? Well, Colour Fit was really born out of what of my philosophy, so we might as well entwine the the conversation around both, really, about talking about where Colour Fit was born out of, because that is basically involves my principles when it, it comes to nutrition. So Colour Fit is basically it's a nutritional resource. Its foundations are simplicity, practicality, and an evidence-based. And it was just really born out of frustration. So Nutrition had come under my umbrella, like I say, so I've been basically practicing it for 20 years. I've had some great help along the lines of the Preston. We've got a nutritionist called Mark Harris. He's just finishing his PhD and he's been a fantastic help to me. But the overall responsibility had always come under my wing. So, and I valued it a lot and I knew it was really important. So I put a lot of resources into it. So I do lectures, I take the lads shopping, I do cooking lessons, I do all sorts of things with them. And still at the end of that, when I was sitting the lads down and going through what we were eating, certain meal plans, oh, I was just ready to kill them. I to literally stop myself from getting off my chair and kicking 10 bells out of them because it was just crap still. They were, they were just forgetting what we told them. They were just affluent enough to go to Nando's all the time. Some of the things I was hearing they were having for pre-match bond and superstition and things like that. It was just, I couldn't believe the outcome of, of the efforts that I was putting into it. So I was just like, right, I've got to do something about this before like, I'm responsible for murdering half the team. 
So, and that's what Colour Fit was born out of. So we knew we, need, we needed some kind of accessible resource to them. So we, we decided to make some kind of digital resource. And, and initially it just sat on Google Drive. So our first protocol was we wanted them to understand card periodization. That was the model that we were promoting to them. But the problem that they were seeing a lot. It was just too simplistic. They were either going really high, dead simple carbs that weren't that healthy, and then they were going in super high protein, really. And there were there was a few that caught up a little bit in the no carbs before marbs and things like that. So we wanted a really simple method of what is the right thing to eat. So we thought, right, how do we make it kind of simple? The easiest way to make something simple is to make it intuitive. So let's relate the content of meals to the, the goals of nutrition. So is it to improve performance? Is it to change your body comp? Or is it to improve health? They're the three main elements that anyone kind of looks to. So we wanted to break down the constitutes of uh, meals into that. So if our performance is easy, let's just go with carbs for that because that produces energy at the fastest rates. Body composition, was that we decided to grow um, protein at that one um, because – Protein helps you stay lean because it has a high satiety, highest metabolic rate in terms of uh, processing it and helps maintain your metabolism. So it's good for staying lean and it's also obviously good for uh, building and repairing muscle. So we put protein to that and called that constitute lean muscle. Health was the kind of hard bit. Um, because before all I've seen is kind of a division of a plate into the amount of salad and veg and, and things like that. We wanted something that was really objective. So we came up with this method of what's called the health score. So that's basically an accumulation of all your RDAs for all your vitamins, minerals, omega-3 and fiber. And we accumulate that into a score. And then we work all that out into percentage of these pie charts that we associated with each meal. And then, so the names were intuitive and they all had different colours. And then we put icons that were intuitive as well. So like a heart for health, uh, a six-pack for lean muscle and a person running for performance. So people, we knew the, that was easy to uh, look at the constitutes of food. And then we realised that calories are important. So we wanted to make that intuitive as well. So we said, why don't we make turn that into like a speed gauge of a, a ring and we put them together. And fortunately for us, this wasn't our intention as we did it, but it was beautiful when it finished. That actually looked like a plate. So the different colours, pie charts, looks like a plate. And then surrounding that, the calorie load looked like the outer rim of a plate. So we decided to call it the Colour Fit Plate. And then the message was dead simple that we were saying to the lads. We were basically always saying to them, if you're training hard or you're coming up to a game, you're looking for more green, which is a performance and carbs, and looking for moderate to high calorie loads. And when you're not training hard and rest days, you're looking for more of the lean muscle and health, and you're looking for more moderate and lower calorie loads based on your specific goals. And therefore, you're getting the holy triad of nutrition, you're getting your performance gains, you're also staying healthy, and then you're also optimizing your body composition. So we were really proud of that. And then we started to develop this big library of meals. Um, and every meal that it was in there had to be dead simple to make, and it had to have a performance or health edge to it as well. We built up this uh, huge library of meals. Um, when we've got over 350 meals in there now 
the next step from that was um, practicality because we were giving these lads the information, but they, were, they just weren't able to act on it. Some of them couldn't even boil an egg. So we decided to make uh, these demonstration videos that went with every meal that we made. Now, that made it pretty hard because making videos for meals is not that easy. Um, but we're really proud that every single meal, meal, like say over 350 of them, have got these associated demonstration videos because the lads fought into that stage of it so much. That was a real game uh, changer for us once we associated the videos. The lads were like, wow, I'll actually have a go at that. I can access it anytime in my kitchen. So now I have got the confidence to try and, try and do that. So that's our main bit, real big meal library that's intuitive. And then we wanted to add further layers to it that help with that kind of practicality and evidence base and simplicity. So we also made what we call the meal builder section. So that's instructions and videos on how to make a certain type of meal. So like a sandwich, a salad, a smoothie, a tray roast, uh, protein balls and things like that. So how do you build up a meal to suit the goals that you want? So we're not just saying follow this recipe. We're actually giving you the cooking independence to take charge of your own nutrition. So that was really good. Then we built a, a number of meal plans as well. So these are kind of give a rationale behind loads of different meal plans for different sports, for different training types, different goals. Uh, and it's not just that's not so much about being prescriptive. It's giving them the rationale so they can do it for themselves. So we explain why certain meals are appropriate, for example, training hard or coming up to games, and certain meals might be more appropriate for losing weight or putting on muscle or whatever the, the certain subject is. And then finally, we've got a real big um, what we call education section or resource section. So loads and loads of infographics and info videos based on real, look, any nutritional topic. So we can try and keep it really practical. So we've got like loads of stuff on how to equip your kitchen, what to have in your cupboards, loads of stuff on eating out. So like Nando's and uh, Pizza Express and things like that, good food guides in there. We've, we're really proud of our info videos. So we're finding lads these days because of Instagram, I can't even be asked reading an infographic but the info the video seemed to really bite in so we've done these really concise info videos and loads of stuff like supplements and things like that where we will quickly show where the peer-reviewed evidence comes from and then what the practical consequence of that act so you always know it's evidence-based without boring them to tears as well and getting the information across as efficiently and as practically as possible so we, we, I had that idea and I kind of built it on Google Drive and I showed it a few mates and the uptake was really good and we started to kind of sell it to clubs. And then, But we knew it was kind of limited within Google Drive. So I recently teamed up with a, a wellbeing company called Hero Wellbeing and they provided me with better resources and we re recently relaunched it. So it's a proper digital app now. And we've got lots more features now that are taking it to the next level. So we've got things like much better search engine. We've got a, a meal prep partner so lads can actually buy meals as well as making themselves now. We've partnered with a, a really big software company. So we're going to have lots of AI features that will help with meal plans. We've also put in our own kind of food database, so our own version of MyFitnessPal, so to speak. But a lot more accurate one that covers all meals, so it can be nominal meals, restaurants, 
supermarket. It covers a whole base, and like I said, the data is really accurate. So we've took it on to the next level, and it's something that people seem to be buying into. The uptake has been fantastic, particularly within football, and like I said, the relaunch has recently happened, so we'll see where it takes us. So where can guys go and follow the stuff with ColourFit? What's the website and uh, what's your guys' social media? The website is um, www.colourfit with uh, a dash between the colour and the fit.com. If you put it in Google, I think it'll, or any search engine, it'll uh, crop up. Um, and at colour and then it's under an underscore fit. So ColourFit with an underscore between the letters colour and fit. That's on Twitter and Insta and then anyone that wants to can drop me a line I'm at tom.littles at sky.com you just put all my contact details after this mate and then anyone that wants them can search on there and uh, get in touch with me happy to give demos and things like that that sounds class I think that that resource I've I've seen it and I obviously didn't know how it's created and the philosophy behind it but I've seen it and it looks so simple and players are constantly confused and coaches are confused. I, I don't even just think that's within football. I just think that's in general that people just don't know what to do. They don't know how to approach nutrition. So with an approach like that, it sounds absolutely like top class. So I think the guys need to go and check it out. But um, if anyone's got any questions for you, are they all right contacting you on Twitter? Yeah, of course. Any, anyway, I'm happy to give you my phone number, Twitter, email, whatever. No secrets really in this game, so I'm happy to share information and, and things like this can only be beneficial for the game as a whole. Oh, that's top. And have you got any uh, speaking engagement coming up, Tom? Are you, are you talking anywhere? No, thank God. I'm <laughs> nervous enough with this, so uh, no, I've, I've done my bit recently. I, I did the UK SEA, which was fantastic. It was a late throw in for struts. So I've had a few times in my history. I don't think I've had a, I would have had a speaking engagement if struts didn't keep on dropping out stuff. Um, but no, I'll certainly <laughs> go into the soccer science one um, that's coming up in is it June June the 21st so I'm looking yeah. forward to some great conferences out there now so I'll be doing my bit to go and I think we're going to host a football fitness federation for you guys coming up in the, the next season so you may trust my arm to do a little bit there but I'm a busy boy so <laughs> I can take it and leave it no problem no, that's quality, mate. That's awesome. And we'll uh, we'll have a catch-up at Soccer Science and have a, a coffee or maybe even a beer. No, I'm looking forward to that one. It should be great. Yeah. No, I appreciate your time today, Tom. I think it's been absolutely quality. It's great to chat with you about all the conditioning work and then colour fit. It looks absolutely class as well. So um, the guys can go and check all that out. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, mate. See you now. Big thank you to Tom for giving up his time and talking to me on the podcast. It was great to get him on. Um, you can go on, follow his work. He is on Twitter at Dr. Little Tom. And you can also follow Colour Fit, which is at Colour underscore Fit. And then the Colour Fit website is colour-fit.com. So go and check that out. It sounds like a top, top resource for players um, in such a simple fashion which nutrition isn't seen to be put out like that anymore. So um, go and check that out because it looks like a top, top resource. 
some of the takeaways were uh, my biggest takeaways were where he talks about his three E's and then the balance between speed, strength and football fitness. So how he looks at the training cycle and then fits his speed and strength work, work around his football fitness work. And then also it was interesting to get his views on how he spoke about the British system compared to tactical periodization and um, that there isn't a one-size-fits-all and it very much depends on the coach and the team at that, that specific time. Um, and coaches have got to learn to choose a system that works for them. So they were my biggest takeaways from speaking to Tom. Um, he was great to talk to and someone I wanted to get on the podcast for a while. He did mention in the episode that we are going to be looking to hold a, a network meeting at Preston. And so that's going to possibly be in June. We will confirm that date as soon as possible. So keep an eye out for that. But we do have our next meeting confirmed. So we are at Scunthorpe United on the 12th, Friday, the 12th of April. So not long away now. If you listen to this podcast as it goes out, um, it's about a week away. So you can get your tickets. There's still places available. It's a free event. And we do have Adam Care talking from Scunthorpe. It's going to be a, a top presentation from Adam. So go onto our website, footballfitfed.com, click the network um, meeting and event tab at the top, and you'll be able to go onto the Scunthorpe meeting from there and secure your place. We hope to see you there. As always, guys, thanks a lot for listening. Um, please leave us a review and give us some feedback on the episode. Let us know if you enjoyed it with Tom. Uh, I did enjoy speaking to him, so he was a top guest to have on. And we'll speak to you again next week.